Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. We are um, making progress, working our way through John's Gospel. And today we'll actually finish up chapter 16. So we went through chapter 16 pretty quickly compared to other chapters. I want to cover a large portion of Scripture today, about half of the chapter. And so what I'll do is... Um, We'll take a couple of verses at a time, uh, followed by my commentary. Just to give you some context of where we're at, maybe some of you haven't been on this journey with us very long, but we've been, uh, we've been tracking uh, John's account of Jesus' time here on earth, and right now, uh, Jesus is in a meeting with his closest friends. This is his last meeting with them prior to his arrest. Since chapter 13, actually, Jesus has been comforting his disciples, he's, he's been encouraging them. And he's been teaching them. And all of this has been taking place within a private setting. Um, specifically, uh, he's been addressing with them and comforting them concerning this topic, the fact that he'll be going away. And this has greatly concerned uh, the disciples. They're pretty uh, disturbed about it, and they're not quite understanding uh, what Jesus is talking about. And so he's taken a lot of time uh, over these last three chapters to address their concerns and to comfort uh, these friends who are near and dear, very close to him. So we're going to pick up uh, chapter 16 at verse, uh, at verse 16. And the scripture says, Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a while, you will see me. So here we have Jesus repeating the, the thing, the very thing he said back in chapter 13 that got them all uh, unsettled. In chapter 13, at verse 33, Jesus says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus says that to them, and then he follows it up. I don't have this for the slides, but he follows it up with two profound verses. He, he tells them a new command I've given you. This is verse 34 and 35 of, of John 13. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know you are my disciples because you love one another. Such a profound verse, such an incredible statement that Jesus would give to, to, give to his followers, to give to us going forward. And as awesome and as profound as it was, if you go back and read chapter 13, you'll see that they completely missed it. Jesus shared that with them, and Peter's next response is, whoa, 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 you're going away? Where are you going? I want to go wherever you go. What do you mean we can't go with you? Completely missed the profound statement Jesus made, because he said they're going away. These guys have invested a huge portion of their lives into following Jesus, and now he says he's leaving and they can't go, and they're kind of freaked out. I think they had expectations. I think they assumed that Jesus was coming to establish this, this earthly reign, as a governmental Messiah, not as a spiritual one, and that in, in his new rule and reign as the new king over the Israelites, that they would have positions, that they, you know, who would sit at his right and, and his left, who would be in the, these political power positions. And suddenly he's saying, they've given up everything. They've given up businesses, right? They, they've been loved by some people, scorned by others, especially those in positions of power and authority in their community. They've paid a price. Now he says he's leaving. They've got to be thinking to themselves, what's going on here? I've, I've gone all in on this Jesus thing, and now he says he's leaving. They've been freaking out. 
And so here in verse 16 of chapter 16, he says the same thing again. And so in the following verses, Jesus offers them some additional um, explanation, some more information. However, as of yet, the disciples, they still don't understand. Verses 17 and 18. At this, some of the disciples said to one another, this is clear that they don't understand. What does he mean by saying, in a little while, you'll see me no more? And then after a little while, you'll see me, because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does it mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. What is a little while? Okay, you see, you're going away. You're going to be gone for the weekend? Right? Are we going to see you on Monday? Right? Are you talking days or weeks or months or longer? What's going on here? I'm invested. I need to know. Right? We don't understand what he's saying. That's the place that they're in. Now, please understand, for you and I, it's so much easier to understand the story. Right? We've read the book. We know how the story ends. These guys are still right in the middle of it. They are clueless. Have you ever felt that way in your spiritual journey? God, <laughs> I don't understand. What's going on? Jesus is perfectly in control. Things are going exactly according to the plan that God set out before, he, before creation. Everything's in order. Everything is working out exactly as it's supposed to work out. But Jesus' disciples, who've walked with him for three years, are in a place where they're saying, we don't understand. Look, if you're in a place on your spiritual journey right now where you don't understand, all I can say to you is you're in good company. Okay? Because among the four and twenty elders surrounding the throne of God right now are some of the guys who are in this meeting. You're in pretty good company right? if you don't understand. Your lack of understanding does not equate to the lack of God's control. Let me say that again. Your lack of understanding does not equate to God's lack of control. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows you. He knows where you are. He knows the circumstances you're in. And he's not the least bit ruffled. He understands that you are. But he's not. So they're clueless. But we understand that Jesus is speaking to them here about, um, about his death and his resurrection. <laughs> But from their perspective, they have no box for this. None whatsoever. And Jesus takes notice. Verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to talk about this. So he said to them, Jesus could tell what's going on. And so instead of ignoring the elephant in the room, he engages them. Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a while you will see me? Jesus sees them. It says, Jesus saw that they want to ask. He sees them. He, he knows clearly. He understands perfectly what's going on with the disciples, inside the disciples, what's happening emotionally and intellectually and spiritually about them. He understands their struggle and he speaks into it. And he asks questions. And then he answers parabolically like he's so likened to do. I love how God speaks in metaphoric and parabolic ways. We it would serve us well to understand the language of God. The parabolic language, the metaphor, the language of analogies. Verses 20 to 22. Very truly I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. A woman, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. 
But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of the joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. I will see you again, and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. Very truly. The King James Version says, Verily, verily. I kind of like verily, verily. You know? I was taught early on that anytime Jesus repeats himself, it's really good to pay attention. Verily, verily. Very truly, I tell you. He says, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. The world, as I've covered extensively the last few weeks, Jesus is referring to the leaders of the current religious institution. Jesus is explaining uh, how the disciples will mourn after his death while the religious leaders are rejoicing over his death. And he employs the analogy of childbirth. In the same way that birth of a child dispels the, the agony of labor, so will the resurrection dispel the agony of the crucifixion. Right? Verse 22 says, so with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Isn't that true? I mean, isn't that the truth? Ladies, you know, right? You've, you've gone through labor. It was, it was exhausting. It was excruciatingly painful. And then you see that little face, right? And, and your agony turns to joy. Nadine was in labor for 18 hours with Lisa. 18 long hours before they, they, they did a C-section. I stayed with her the whole time. She told me, hey, pal, this ain't no hit and run. You're going to be in that room with me? You're going to be in that room with me the whole time. I was all those 18 hours, and I remember she would doze off. I was sitting on a chair. I was sitting on a chair backwards so that the, the back of the chair was in front of me. I kind of had my elbows on it and my head down. And at some point in the middle of the night, I dozed off when the next labor pain hit. And she looked at me. She says, hey! <laughs> it, was almost, it was almost like a demon voice that came out of her. I'm not saying she was demon possessed during childbirth. I'm just saying it kind of sounded that way. I was asleep when I was awakened to, to this. Are you going to sleep? Are you going to help me breathe? <laughs> <laughs> uh, trying to make you look good, babe. Trying to, you know. I woke up and I helped her breathe. You know? I, woke up and I helped her breathe. But when we saw Lisa's pretty face, when we got to hold her in our arms, you forget all about all those hours, all, all of that pain. It's just a distant memory because your, your head explodes at the, the beauty of this child that you're holding in your arms right now. That's the picture that Jesus is saying. Hey, this is going to be agonizingly painful, like any woman who's been in labor fully understands. But there's going to be a change. The season you're about to go through, Jesus is using metaphoric language. He's using parabolic language. He says, this is going to be an extraordinarily painful season of you. But I have hope. There's hope for you. Listen to me. Your grief will be turned to joy. And no one will take that joy from you. There's a difficult time ahead for the disciples. A very difficult time. But a vastly better day is coming. And Jesus goes on to speak of that day. Verses 23 and 24. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. So interesting when he, the shift he makes now in the conversation. In that day, in that day where there's joy, and then he's talking about after the, the, his, his arrest, after the brutal beating that he goes through, right? after the crucifixion. He's talking about after the resurrection, in that day. 
you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you receive, and your joy will be complete. So we'll no longer need to ask Jesus anything. We, here now, in this day, a couple thousand years later, we no longer need to ask Jesus anything because we have restored and renewed access to the Father. We can go directly to him. Instead, we can go directly to the Father in Jesus' name. We can do it with Jesus' authority. We can do it with the same liberty that Jesus has, with the same access that Jesus has. Anybody here remember the movie Pretty Woman? Any, probably it's a bunch of ladies have seen that movie, right? When I was preparing a sermon, that movie came to mind. I tried to find a video clip that we could use right now, but there were parts in it that I just couldn't justify. <laughs> So when I was talking, I even said, Nadine, what do you think? She's like, yeah, probably not. So I'll just tell you about it. <laughs> There's a part in the movie when Julia Roberts' character, Vivian Ward, enters this uh, ritzy boutique, right? Really fancy, Rodeo Drive, kind of you know, snooty, uppity, you know, very ritzy kind of place. And, and so she walks in, and she's not dressed like most of the customers there would be dressed. And when she walks in, there are three very snooty shop workers, and they look down on her, and they're insulting to her, and they actually refuse to serve her because of her appearance. And so they have a little bit of a conflict, and, and the Vivian Ward character walks out of the store. And the next scene, she is with uh, the Richard Gere character, the billionaire uh, Edward Lewis accompanies her to a, a different shop, a different clothing store. And with his name and his credit cards, he buys her an obscene amount of high-end, very expensive clothes. So what Vivian Ward couldn't accomplish on her own, in her own name, with her own credit, with her own authority, was easily accomplished in Edward Lewis's name, with his credit and with his authority. He just walked in, told them who he was, they recognized his name, and she got you know, everything she could ever possibly want. Right? It's just a great scene uh, in the movie. It's a, it's a classic Cinderella-type story, right? Prince Charming, the white knight in shining armor, comes to the rescue of the fair maiden. Or in this story, the local prostitute. That's what happened. Probably a bunch of ladies are going to go home and find you know, the prince... Uh, uh, pretty Woman on, I was going to say Princess Bride, I don't know. You're going to find Pretty Woman on Netflix. It's on Netflix, I checked. <laughs> we're Vivian Ward. We're the prostitutes, so, as it were, who could do nothing on our own. We could do nothing in our own name, under our own authority, with our own resources. We, don't, we wouldn't even be recognized. And Jesus, as it were, is our... Edward Lewis, he's our Prince Charming. He's our knight in shining, shining, shining armor who comes to us and accomplishes in his name what we can never accomplish. Isn't that awesome? This is what he's telling his disciples. What you've never been able to do in your name, now you can do in my name. You'll have my credit. You'll have my influence. You'll have my access. You'll have my authority. You can go directly to the Father. And so now, for you and I, because of the cross, we have access 
unfettered, unlimited access to the Father. We have grace and favor. We have power and authority more than most of us ever realize. And the reason is because we have Jesus. And for that free reason, we can ask the Father, as Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Now, only because I've been around church a long time, can I add a clarifying point here? <laughs> I want you to understand that this isn't name it and claim it. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not blab it and grab it, okay? If you've heard... <laughs> If you've heard those teachings before, you know, you can take a verse out of context that says, I can ask whatever in my name. That's what's it. Anything in Jesus' name. If I just had, if I just tag Jesus' name on the end of the request, then I can get it. That's not, that's not how it works. That's really not what's being said here. I think that's a misappropriation of the text. Let me try and explain. You have to understand from Jesus' perspective, it's always been about relationship. It's all about relationship. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit have invited us into their circle, into their communion, into their community, so that we have access to all that's shared between them, all the love, all the freedom, all the grace. And please understand that in that circle that we've been invited into, there's no selfishness in this circle, no selfishness whatsoever. There's no lust for things in the circle that, of love and unity that's shared between Father, Son, and Spirit. There's, they lack for nothing. There's no lust for things there. There's no ambition for position or for status. The Father, Son, and Spirit, no one is looking for the newest high-end Mercedes, right? That's not, that's not the things that are being asked for. There, there are things vastly more valuable than a hot new car. That makes sense? It's about relationship. It's about intimacy. It's not about things at all. Nothing about what we can get. It's all about life. And it's all about love. That's what's being spoken to here. Because that's priceless. You cannot come close to putting a price on that. Am I making sense? If I'm making sense, a little, a little head shake, a little nod like this, that'll work. All right, good. Because I'll go around this mountain again. I'll find three or four other ways to say it. <laughs> That's right. Good preacher, just find another way to say the same thing. Jesus continues, verses 25 to 28. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No. The Father himself loves you because you've loved me. And have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. So Jesus is explaining that this day will come. After his death, after his resurrection, after Pentecost. When we will have direct access to the Father. You and I live in that day. We now have direct, direct access to the Father. Jesus says, I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No. You'll ask him yourselves. Because you've entered into that love that's shed among the Trinity. Jesus says, the Father loves, the Father himself loves you 
Because you loved me. We've entered into that love relationship with him. And you believe that I've come from God. In other words, Jesus is saying, because you've entered into this, this divine circle of love, and because you trust me, then you can enter into the, you can share all the resources, all the benefits that we have among ourselves. And the disciples are starting to get it. At least a little bit, maybe. They seem to think so. <laughs> the disciples, then Jesus' disciples said, verses 29 and 30, Now you are speaking clearly and without figure of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even have to, that you don't even have to ask anyone, excuse me, let me say that again. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things. And you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. This makes them believe. This makes them makes us trust. And Jesus, Jesus responds to them. He still sees right through them. He says, do you believe? <laughs> do you really believe? And I think the, the fact of the matter is, is they probably still don't. He says that he, a time will come when he'll no longer use figures of speech. And they assume that it's that moment right here and now. Then it's... And it's really not. It's really not. And so Jesus responds to them and says, Do you now believe? Question mark. A time is coming and in fact has come when you'll be scattered, each to your own home. You'll leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So Jesus responds to their claim of belief. He says, do you really trust me? Do you really trust me? Here, let me tell you what's, what's really about to happen. And here Jesus, is, he's clearly prophesying to them now about events that will soon transpire. He says a time is coming and in fact has now come. Jesus, his arrest, it's just around the corner. It's, it's going to happen very, very soon. And he tells them four truths. He prophesies four things to them. You could say three, but he says it as, as four different things. He says, one is you will be scattered. Then you'll be scattered. The second thing is, eat to your own home. You're going to run away and go hide in your house. He says, you will leave me all alone. And he finishes up by saying, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. So Jesus is prophesying that they're all going to abandon him. You say you believe, you claim to trust me, but very soon, you guys are all going to run away. And that's exactly what happened, except for John. And then Jesus tells them, and this is significant. This is a very important portion of Scripture. I would underline this. I would highlight it. I'd put a circle around it. Jesus says, yet. He's saying, in spite of the fact that all of you are going to abandon me, when that moment comes, and you're all going to run away and hide in your houses, and you're going to leave me all alone, I want you to know this. I am not alone, for my Father is with me. His Father will never leave him, will never forsake him. The, the unity, the connection, the oneness of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the mystery of the Trinity has never been broken. They've been one, they've been one since before creation. There was a oneness among them. And even when 
Jesus said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father never forsook the Son. Jesus so took our sin upon him that just like us in the fog of our sin, sometimes we can't see God, he couldn't see the Father. But beforehand, before the sins of the world across all time and space had been laid on his shoulders, when he could still see clearly, he prophesied this, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. He's prophesying about the cross. He's saying, you left me, but the Father never has. He's saying that the Father was with him, with Christ, on the cross. He was never forsaken. The Father never left and never forsook the Son, not even on Calvary's cross. I think Paul speaks, he hints toward this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19, speaking the gospel to the the Corinthians. Christians in Corinth, he says, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, that the Father was in Christ, that he was in him. He wasn't far off. He he didn't run away. He didn't turn. The lie that most of us have been taught is that when the sins of the world came on Jesus, the Father had to look away because he couldn't look upon sin. That's, That's an absolute fallacy. God doesn't run from sin. It wasn't God who was hiding in the garden. It was Adam and Eve who were hiding in the garden. It wasn't the Father who turned away. It was his kids who turned away. And when Jesus walked the earth, the word made flesh dwelling among us, fully man, yet still fully God, he hung out with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and fishermen. Anybody know any fishermen? (laughs) There's sin in their lives, right? Jesus didn't turn away. He didn't walk through the streets of Jerusalem with a blindfold on. He hung out with the Samaritans, spent days with them, sat and had a conversation with the woman at the well. God never turns from sin. It's us who turn away from him. That's the truth. God the Father was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And if you didn't didn't catch this, this is good news for you today. Listen to this. Not counting people's sins against them. That's good news, right? So you might be sitting here today feeling like 10 pounds of sin in a 5-pound bag. Let me tell you good news. God is better than you ever thought he was. He loves you more than you ever thought was possibly could be imagined. He loves you. Scripture tells us that the Father loves us with a great and a lavish love. We have a good God. And that The work on the cross was so complete that what Jesus did was so sufficient that Paul could write that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Oh, man, I need to hear that. I need to know that. 
God is so good. He loves you so much. Let me say it this way. You don't have to run and hide. You can throw your fig leaves away. You have access. Not because of your goodness. Not because of your righteous acts. But because of what Jesus did. All this. So that the disciples could have peace. In the storm that's about to come. Verse 33. I have told you these things Jesus said. So that in me. You may have peace. In this world. You will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Like the word overcome, it means to prevail, to conquer, to be victorious. Strong's Concordance says that it means to carry off the victory, to come off victorious. It kind of makes me think of when, when the team wins the Super Bowl and the winning players douse the coach with a, you know, a big bucket of Gatorade and then they lift him up on his shoulders and carry him off the field, right? That kind of victory. When the battle's been completely fought and overwhelmingly won, and you get to celebrate together. So Jesus is saying, he's saying to you today, he's saying to me today, yes, there's going to be trouble in the world. Do you need to be convinced of that? Anybody live life this past week? Did anybody have a trouble-free week? Was there, was there a full seven days that you were here last Sunday where you were absolutely 100% trouble-free? <laughs> if, if that was the case, then I want to celebrate with you right now. Because I don't know if I've ever had a week that had zero trouble. Most of the time there's trouble. Sometimes they're really big trouble. And Jesus is saying, in this world you will have trouble. He's not lying to them. He's not sugarcoating it. He's not painting a pretty picture. It's kind of an encouraging word I gave during worship. Some of us are saying, Lord, rescue me out of these troubles in this world. And he's saying, invite me into the trouble and see what I can do. This is what he says here. In this world, you will have troubles, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So Jesus is saying to you today, sitting here in the Charlottetown Vineyard, November 15, 2015, he's saying, take heart. He's saying, be of good cheer. Take courage. Be courageous. Have confidence. Cheer up. Don't lose heart. I've completely prevailed and conquered your troubles. That's what he's done for us. That's what's provided for us. So let's pray. Oh, God. Lord, help us. Lord, I got friends here today. They got troubles. Just like you said there'd be troubles in the world, they're wrestling with it right now. Lord, we welcome you to come into our troubling circumstances. And come and be God in our midst. Lord, stand at the front of the boat of our lives and rebuke the storms that we find ourselves in the midst of. Calm the storms. Come and be God in our midst. Come and do God-sized things. Meet us in our troubles and be our overcomer. Comfort us like you comforted the disciples that fateful night. Give us insight and understanding into your ways. Because, Lord, sometimes we just miss it. I pray you give us eyes that can see and give us ears that can hear. Grant us wisdom and revelation to understand the varied and different ways that you're working in each of our lives.
Grant us this very same peace in the midst of our troubles. Do it, Lord. Can I have the worship team come back up? Lead us in a final song. As these guys lead us in a final song today, maybe you're here today and you have need. Maybe as clueless as the disciples felt that night concerning the, the circumstances of their spiritual journey, maybe you feel clueless today and you need some insight from God. If that's you, come forward during the final song. Are you wrestling with the reality that God's ways simply aren't your ways? Hmm. Do you find yourself in need of comfort and understanding? Are you facing a storm and maybe you need some peace? If anyone here is facing troubles of this world and you need the overcoming power of Jesus, 